You are listening to The Franchise Guys, the podcast that takes a long, loving look at each installment in a series of movies. This season, we're cross-pollinating the intertwined Alien and Predator film franchises. If you haven't already, check out our pods for Alien, Aliens, and Predator. Today, the topic is 1990s Predator 2. I'm John Evans. I am joined, as always, by Michael T. Kuchek and Vikram Wheat. Mike, Vic, how the hell are you guys? Hello. Good morning. <laughs> I am glad that we're all here once again. Uh, our recording schedule and our editing schedule is a little spottier this season, so uh, you guys may be listening to the show a long time after we recorded it, but hopefully Danny Glover is still alive and things like that. <laughs> All is well in the uh, Predator-verse uh, at the moment. Uh, there is a reboot in the works uh, with Shane Black apparently at the helm, which is exciting. But for today, we will deal with the uh, the lovely Stephen Hopkins sequel, Predator 2. Uh, Stephen Hopkins' guy's most notable credit on his IMDb is The Ghost in the Darkness, which I think all three of us have an appreciation for. Yeah, I dig that movie. I'm crushingly disappointed by The Ghost in the Darkness, and I actually once uh, once worked with uh, Gail Ann Hurd and desperately tried to convince her to let me uh, remake it for her. <laughs> yeah, I just remember really liking it in the theater, and I, I saw it again maybe 10 years ago and still found certain sequences really creepy and intense and dark, you know, like kind of the dealing with the abduction of various victims into the long grass by the lion. It was pretty cool. I think it's a, my, my biggest problem with it is that it is a shameless ripoff of jaws. Um, yeah. and, and Michael Douglas, who I generally love is, is no Quint. Uh, and, uh, Val Kilmer is no Roy Shatter. Yeah, well, truer words never spoken there with Val Kilmer. But uh, also Stephen Hopkins directed Judgment Night, which is a movie that a lot of people liked, but I never saw until about 10 years ago. And that left me pretty cold. Judgment Night, I would say, is a pretty terrible movie. Uh, But it does have an excellent soundtrack. If there's a through line between uh, Predator 2 and Judgment Night... You know, genesis of the cross-pollination of franchises. It's the one that kind of hints at crossover with Alien. And the case of Judgment Night, the soundtrack was all uh, metal bands paired with hip-hop artists. Uh, and it was great. It's still an amazing soundtrack. And all likelihood probably gave birth to that subgenre. Oh, interesting. I will disagree with both of you vehemently. I think Judgment Night is the best thing he's directed. Uh, I think it's uh, Cooper Gooding Jr.'s best performance, and I thought that Dennis Leary was fantastic as a bad guy. I wish he did more of that. Interesting. Yeah, well, I haven't seen it in, again, like 10 years. And it is a great years, soundtrack. You're right. But it, it, it's, to my recollection, it's just one of those kind of thuddingly broad ludicrous kind of scenarios instead of one that that really sort of proceeds logically through you know events that one could realistically believe happening uh which would in that scenario you know with these guys on the run in the city uh would have been potentially a lot more compelling but i think that that's something you know that i would say about predator 2 as well and and i i i like that the way that this film is directed visually i suppose but you know the the script is 
brutally, brutally bad in my view. Um, I'm thinking based on the fact that the writers of this film are the same two guys, the Thomas brothers uh, from the first film, and we don't have any other credited writers uh, on either Predator or Predator 2. It makes me think that, uh, and I'm sure there's evidence to this, I just haven't looked it up, that Shane Black basically wrote Predator under the table. What do you guys think about that? Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. There is a snap to the dialogue in the first one that uh, simply just doesn't exist in this. Well, as is normally customary on this show, uh, let's take a look back and uh, throw out our recollections of seeing Predator 2 for the first time. Uh, I'll kick it off. I did see it in the theater after having loved uh, the original and I really loved this movie as a, as a kid. I mean, I, I was very pleased with it um, as a, you know, whatever, 1990. I'm about 15 years old. And uh, I thought that it was really uh, a cool mix of action and horror and went darker than the first one. And I loved the L.A. setting. And I thought Danny Glover was cool and a lot of other nice things I could say about it. But uh, for me... It must not have made that huge of an impression because I don't think I ever saw it again. Maybe once on home video right as soon as it came out in the early 90s, but I don't have any recollection of that. And uh, seeing it today, spoiler, I don't feel that it held up very well. Mike, uh, what's your relationship with Predator 2? I ran, ran, ran right out to see this movie in the theater uh, for So I Loved, the first Predator. I'm like, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, Predator 2. And uh, I got there, and I watched it, and I thought, okay. It was definitely not, you know, at the same level as the first movie, but I didn't super hate it. Uh, overall, I found it to be a little bit of a shrug of a film. But uh, I did have one weird thing come up is uh, a little bit later, me and a friend of mine named B-Boy, who uh, I saw a lot of movies with back in the day, uh, we went to go see something completely unrelated at a theater, and that movie broke. Like, uh, I, I, <laughs> God, for the life of me, I can't remember what it was, but it was like five minutes in, the movie broke uh, <laughs> or burned or whatever. And uh, the theater manager comes into the theater and is like, hey, everybody, sorry, the movie caught on fire or whatever. Uh, I'll give you a choice. You can either get a full refund and sorry for your troubles or Predator 2 is about to start. <laughs> you can just go watch Predator 2 if you want. B-Boy hadn't seen it yet, so he's like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I'm like, eh, all right. So, That's weirdly funny. enough, I, I saw this movie that I generally consider to be a little mediocre. I, I watched it twice in the course of, like, two weeks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, and uh, that was it. That, that definitely scratched the Predator 2 itch for me for uh, 26 years or so. <laughs> um, it's a movie that uh, is clearly kind of dumb. And there's a reason that I stayed away from it for like a quarter of a century, but uh, it does have like some cool ideas, you know, kind of, you know, exactly like RoboCop 2. Before we get to Vic, as a side note, when I saw RoboCop uh, in the theater, I actually thought that the film broke in that or that they had a, uh, that they, you know, edited in the wrong reel of something. And it's during the car commercial where the dinosaur is rampaging. Right. Uh, that was so discordant to me that as a little kid, I remember thinking, oh, no, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> Vic, what's your uh, experience with Predator 2? 
I didn't see it in the movie theater. I think I'm a I'm a little bit younger than you guys. Um, a very little so bit. So I probably because this is a, a very little bit. Well, but still, this is, you know, I mean, the difference between 15 and uh, you know is the difference between my parents being willing to drop me off at an R-rated movie and not being willing to do so. But so I think I was about 12 when I saw it on video, and my feeling, even watching it again last night, is that it has more of everything that 12 year old me wanted. And none of what grown-up film study major me wants in a in a sequel to Predator, which is the Predator's got more gadgets, and there's this fantastic scene where he doesn't just see in heat vision; he's got all these other things he can do, and you know more of him figuring you know his stuff that he uses to heal up bullet wounds and and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I think it seemed very cool to me at the time, and I probably watched it more than you guys did. I was struck by how many lines I knew were coming up. But yeah, watching it again, it's clearly not a very good movie. I agree with Mike that I think it does have some good ideas. Um, I do just want to say, though, as a, as a uh, preface to any comments that I make going forward, I am a, uh, a, new, a, a second-time father uh, as of about three weeks ago. So I watched this with a, a screaming three-week-old strapped to my chest like a the vest on a suicide bomber. Um, so <laughs> I probably miss a fair bit of the dialogue, and then some of the maybe some of the nuances escaped me. So I apologize <laughs> if I if I say something that sounds stupid or if I don't remember a line of uh, a particular line of dialogue. Well, first off, congratulations on that uh, on the new arrival, Vic. But uh, I think you picked the wrong move, the right movie to be distracted in because uh nuances are in short supply with yeah. predator 2 it's a big bombastic movie and as i said before in my view the writing is very very poor otherwise pretty first class uh, production but uh, the script is crap and it, it did kind of make me wonder this came out three years after the first one uh was it a rush job i don't know three years is a long time it's not like season two of true detective where the guy had years to accumulate the material for the first season, and then he had to ram the season, second season through in about a year. I just don't know. Why does the dialogue suck so bad in this film? And I guess part <laughs> of it is <laughs> it's, it's going for Shane Black. It's going for these pithy one-liners and, uh, you know, sort of testosterone macho witticisms and it, it, it just ends up, I mean, there's some howlers that I will be pointing out along the way as we talk about this movie. It's primarily comprised of generic eighties cop dialogue. It's like Mad Libs dialogue, except for when it tries to reach up to the sheen blackiness of the first one. And then it just fails miserably. Exactly. John, exactly. I will throw this out there to reinforce your idea that, Perhaps Shane Black did a, a good deal of punch-up on the first Predator. I'm looking at the, the writing credits for one of the two brothers from uh, the first Predator. And it has a lot of credits, but they are movies like Executive Decision, Wild Wild West, and Mission to Mars, mm -hmm. um, which are all, all of them sort of notoriously terrible movies. Yeah, That certainly suggests that Predator was uh, at least a good idea, but, you know, he probably needed some help to make that script what it was. Yeah, it could be these Thomas brothers, you know, had a lot of really cool 
sci-fi male-driven concepts that, you know, were uh, easily translatable to the screen, but dialogue was not so much their strength. Although, Vic, Vic, I I will concur that this movie does an excellent job of expanding the predator-ness in that sense. It does what a Predator 2 should. Uh, more gadgets, more stuff, more Predators. You know, we see inside the ship, you know, we get more Predator, predator juice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we'll touch on along the way the innovations that the Predator has this time around. And it is some cool stuff. I mean, this movie, I, I wouldn't say that it's completely without its high points. I have a few notes along the way where I, you know, wrote stuff like that's really cool and so on. So uh, it's not just going to be a, a, a rip fest here. Uh, I'm still dismayed, though, that it's that much worse than the first movie. I mean, it, again, so many of the same people involved, same producers, it's the exact same music, for better or for worse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it should have been Schwarzenegger, but they wouldn't pay him enough, apparently, which I find odd considering how much money they put into this movie, which is part of why it was such a massive flop at the box office, because uh, their production budget was so much more than the first film, and expectations were so much higher, and that killed the franchise for quite a few years, the fact that this movie was a bomb now, that said, I like Danny Glover taking over for Arnold here. And obviously, Lethal Weapon back to Shane Black and that connection. That's what paved the way for him to get this action hero role. And I saw an article when I was doing my very small amount of research on this film. Uh, there was an article suggesting that Danny Glover was almost that black action hero that we didn't really get until Wesley Snipes a couple of years ago. Um, if you're not thinking of guys like Eddie Murphy as an action hero with films like 48 Hours and Beverly Hills Cop. But at this point, Glover was 44 years old, uh, which is old, you know, for your breakthrough role as an action hero. Uh, but he was a big dude and a credible badass. So uh, I would have liked to have seen him do more action films. I'm not really sure why he didn't. I guess the Lethal Weapon sequels were frequent enough that that kept him busy on that front. And the other thing I want to say uh, about the the racial casting of the film and, you know, Danny Glover being the lead and all these other characters that we'll talk about, uh, you know, Latino characters primarily, in some ways, I think this movie feels racially diverse almost by default. Like, I don't feel like anything they, they set out uh, to be representative or to, to, you know, even sort of court that audience at all or a broader you know, a non-white audience. I think it's a missed opportunity, and the movie would be handled very, very differently today. I think it would be unabashedly aimed at the young African-American and Latino audience, sort of the Fast and Furious uh, franchise approach to casting and to just the culture of their film. It's a huge mainstream but racially diverse target demo that goes to a lot of movies. And instead, we get this pretty old-fashioned square kind of sci-fi movie for the most part that actually trades on stereotypes quite a bit. I feel like this film is really more for white people who are afraid of gangbangers. And then you kind of throw in some heroes of color to make it feel like less of a racially charged nightmare. I don't know, man, because uh, uh, you've got the Colombian gang, you've got the Haitian gang, uh, but then, you, but but all the cops are, you know, it's Danny Glover, it's a bunch of Latinos, uh, 
The one significant white dude is Bill Paxton, and he's kind of comic relief. He's her clown. The only other gang that we see is the the flamboyant white guys in the subway who hassle that kind of Bernard Getz type dude. Yes. I think it's, they're, they're going for a, a really broad idea of like, here's the Clemming gang, here's the Haitian gang, and here are these white gangs. And, you know, it's it's, it's more like the Warriors than anything else. I don't, I don't know if I get a Warriors vibe or that there's even a white gang. I mean, I, I, I guess those guys, the two or three of them comprise yeah. a gang. Yeah, that, that, that wasn't... I don't think they were meant to be the white gang. I think that they were just, uh, you know, the third gang that's encountered in the movie, and they happen to be, like, white dudes who dress like Michael Jackson. It is nice to get at least one uh, street thug that that is Caucasian. And, by the way, the costumes of those guys, I was going to talk about that later. But the the street, uh, the subway thugs, they um, have delightfully, actually, the costumes in general in this film are delightfully dated, but... The over-the-top thug costumes in that subway, for me, it was like Death Wish meets Robocop by way of the In Living Color dance team from the 90s. (laughs) It's a very 80s, almost canon-ish idea. Yeah, there's nothing timeless whatsoever about the costumes in this film. But but before we get too far, I I do just want to go back and mention in, in my surely even smaller amount of research on this, one of the things that I thought was interesting was that Stephen Hopkins, though white, was born in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I thought it interesting that there is such a broad caricature of the uh, – are they are – they, I thought they, they were they, Jamaican. Exactly. So exa- exactly. There's this broad characterization of, uh, of, of these Jamaican uh, uh, gangsters, um, which it just – I mean it seems like a startling coincidence – uh, that Hopkins was born in Jamaica, but it also seems unbelievable that someone who actually knows people from Jamaica would allow something so uh, silly to be put on film. Well, yeah, I, I mean, th- those guys are such stereotypes. Yeah, there yeah. was something in the air at that specific point in our cultural history because 1990 also gave us Steven Seagal's Mark for Death. Oh, yeah. that, uh, which, which crossed my mind, yeah. Yeah, we're, the exact same year we had two large-ish studio action movies in which the hero is fighting these kind of voodoo-ish type dudes. You know, these extremely broad guys. And uh, at the same time, do you guys remember the the video game Narc? Yeah. That yeah. I, that was also, like, you know, that same year that uh, Narc was out, and, like, that, those were, like, some of the toughest guys were the, the posse-type dudes. You know, so I ended up, for whatever reason... In 1989 to 90, we got really scared of <laughs> voodoo guys. I, I vaguely uh, remember a lot of headlines about, like, Kingstown, Jamaica being the murder capital of the world at that time or something like that. Like, there was definitely a lot of violence in Jamaica um, in the 80s, I believe. So maybe that fueled it, this perception. But it's not like, I don't remember there being this rash of... <laughs> Jamaican gangster crime in the United States. Do you guys? <laughs> it, it, it never touched on my uh, North Chicago neighborhood. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but, I, yeah, but, but there, there, there's such a, a clear character right. in terms of uh, you know, they, you know, especially these guys. They have the giant blunts. 
and uh, and the big hats and uh, you know and, and the Rasa dreads and just the entire thing and the huge huge accent and you know just the entire thing. It's like I, I think that they're just like a go-to colorful dangerous gang. Yeah, yeah. I mean, always in action movies, we're looking for bad guys. You know, what nationality can they be? You know, what type are they? Russian mobsters? Are they uh, Islamic? jihadis like right. what is it that we can draw on this time and yeah i guess that was just popular for a while to have the rasta guys <laughs> yeah <laughs> this is a predator movie without shane black and this is a danny glover movie without shane black and it's both noticeable by his absence uh again uh, i think the closest comparison is robocop to robocop 2 I have a way deeper love of RoboCop than I have of Predator, but they're still kind of in that pantheon of, you know, the great movies that kind of shaped my hardwiring as a person. Predator 2 and RoboCop 2 are better world-building movies than they are movie movies. Well, I haven't seen RoboCop 2 since the theater, but I definitely see a lot of RoboCop, quote-unquote, the RoboCop franchise, the RoboCop world, whatever you want to call it, yeah. in yeah. Predator 2. That was my first thought when we open on the city that's, uh, you know, the crime has gotten to a level at which it's like straight up war in the streets and the cops are pushed to the brink. And, uh, you know, the only way to win against these guys is to become, you know, over the top action heroes. You know, the last time I saw that was Robocop. You know, it has, you know, and of course, it takes place in the distant future of 1997, you know. <laughs> um, so we know by that time that, you know, uh, society has completely fallen apart. By the way, how depressed or afraid must we have been in 1990 to, to credibly, even at the time, say that just seven years from now, this is going to be our Los Angeles? Yeah, it's going to be warfare in the streets. Uh, the other elements that kind of give this a little bit of a, a square, old-fashioned kind of feel is, for the most part, it feels uh, like its sensibilities are, are being taken from New York. Yeah, movies of the late seventies and eighties in terms of uh, you know crime and action. Death Wish uh, again. Yeah, exactly. It really feels like this is like Death Wish four in terms of <laughs> where it's kind of drawing on in its cultural sensibilities. Um, and oh yeah, by the way, it just so happens to be L.A. Like it's not like a more distinctly Los Angeles movie like, say, the first Terminator. Not only that, I mean, when they shoot on location, which they do quite a bit of, it's like always downtown. It's just like L.A. is as close to New York as you can basically make it as far as the, the, yeah, the they, milieu. Yeah, they, they do a lot of shooting in, uh, in the Garment District. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure where there's a slaughterhouse district over on 7th. Uh, but maybe it was there. I don't know. I didn't move out to all of too. So maybe they cleaned it up after the, the, the Predator explosion debacle. Yeah. It's kind of like a lethal weapon slash point break in the, in the sense that Danny Glover and Gary Busey are in this film. They meet up and they go to RoboCop land. It's kind of the, the vibe of this film. Yeah. It is crime ravaged. The sensibility is very generic. 80s cop movie, you know, yeah. where, where Danny Glover's character is, you know, I, I mean, even his character is Mike Harrington. Yeah, uh, Harrigan. Harrigan, that's right. Yeah. To me, I thought that this was like John Carpenter setting Escape from New York in the 90s, doing this just seven years in the future. It They didn't give it up themselves enough leeway with these time frames, 
frames back then. The movie's dated almost instantly. Uh, and incidentally, John Carpenter got that right with Ghosts of Mars uh, a bit later because he set that decades from now and it still hasn't come to, to pass. But back then, everything was, you know, in the immediate future, we're going to have uh, a nightmare, a dark vision of the future come to pass. And all that said, this is kind of a prescient global warming vision of Los Angeles. The heat wave is kind of a character in this movie. I like that. I mean, everyone has sweat stains. We're all sweating buckets through this entire movie. And it does kind of feel like maybe the changing climate, uh, is 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 a man-made issue in this film which is ahead of its time so um the opening sequence also is kind of cool i I have to give them a little credit for the the way that we call back the music from the original and the sound design and some predatory sounds the shriek of the predator it evokes the jungle of the original as we're panning over these palm trees but then we get the reveal that it's not South America, it's Los Angeles. And I did kind of like that. It is a cool shot. I agree yeah. with that. Yeah. It's a very nice way to transit to open the movie and transition from the first to the second one. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And so we meet our heroic police officers, uh, played by Ruben Blades and Maria Conchita Alonzo. Uh, together with Rachel Tikotin, uh, these were pretty much our Latino standard bearers of action and sci-fi and even horror films, uh, big films in the 80s and 90s. It was nice to see their faces. But recently I got to see Ruben Blades again on um, Fear the Walking Dead as Daniel Salazar, a very beautiful oh. character. You know, Marie Cachino Alonso, I spent the first uh, 10 minutes in the movie looking at her and going, God, who is she? I've just seen her in something. What was it? And I realized, oh, yeah, that's right. Just a couple of months ago, I had rewatched The Running Man. Oh, and yeah. she's uh, Schwarzenegger's uh, sidekick in that movie. I had, um, uh, at 3 o'clock in the morning with my, my screaming infant, uh, was watching a, an X-Files marathon and saw Ruben Blades on an episode of The X-Files literally two nights ago. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, he's I, and one, of the, one of my favorite character actors, actually. I love him in... Uh, once upon a time in Mexico, um, a lot of other stuff he's done that I really liked. So yeah. I would, in general, the casting I think is, is really terrific in this. Like, I feel like they, they went all out to make sure that they got good actors for a lot of the parts. I mean, even Robert Davi showed up and I was sort of like, holy shit, that's, you know, that's Robert Davi. What's he doing in here? Adam Baldwin, uh, you know, Adam, well, yeah. Morning it's, a first, it's a first-class production in, in many ways. They just didn't yeah. put the time into the script. In terms of casting, it really feels like they took the gigantic wad of money that they would have just given to Schwarzenegger, <laughs> and instead they spread it out across the cast. So instead of, like, one big A-plus name, you just have, like, a lot of uh, just strong talent throughout. Yeah, but they're all mostly wasted, again, because of the script. And the costumes, again, were not something that they put the right amount of attention on. Uh, I love the shirt that Danny Glover is wearing in this opening sequence. It's this really weird shade of, I guess it's orange. I don't know. But he stands out for sure amongst the other characters. And he's kind of wearing this middle-aged dad sort of wardrobe. He's got pleated slacks that are kind of, you know, pulled up too high. And 
uh, it's more the time than his actual age, I think. Uh, again, though, back then, I think 44 sure seemed old to me, but, you know, it does to most kids. <laughs> <laughs> That's the exact age of dad. Yeah. The only costume that really jumped out at me was Bill Paxson's outfit, uh, <laughs> which was extremely specific for its time. It was the uh, the pants pulled up to the all, all the way up to the belly button. Uh, with the shirt underneath, and then the the uh, that jacket type thing. Uh, oh, yeah, it's kind of like a sports coat. Yeah. My immediate thought on seeing him was, if I were to dress to appear on the cover of a Huey Lewis and the News album, I would dress it in that exact <laughs> manner. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> if yeah. I was going to dress to appear in Teen Wolf Two, I would dress exactly this way. Yeah, like, guys, cops in movies from this period, like, often wear these garish suits that are really, really uh, hilarious. If I was in 1989 and I wanted to go hang out with Anthony Michael Hall and try to pick up chicks at the Standard, I would dress in exactly this way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I saw James Spader wearing this in Less Than Zero or something like that. Uh, Harrigan has a laser scope on his handgun. And they all think, do. Yeah, all I, the guns in this I, movie have scopes on them because that's how you know it's the future. I think that was their way of making the police weaponry a little more futuristic by giving them all laser scopes. Yeah, it's or the future. They, Just put a scope on it. Yeah, it does make the gun look cooler. Yeah. And more futury. You know, it does. It does. And you could say that it makes you more accurate, which is good if you're a cop. You know, don't shoot the civilians. Well, it has a weird parallel with the Predator, too. I mean, the Predator oh, yeah. has a laser. That was the, you know, that was the futuristic alien tech that the Predator brought to the first film was right. the laser scope that appears on you know, the laser sight that appears on your chest. I will say, too, just this this opening scene, because it goes on for a long time before we even really get to Danny Glover. I feel like Hopkins is is almost trying to match the testosterone level of the first film just with the sheer number of bullets. Like I, watching it, I kept thinking of the the team shredding the jungle with the minigun and stuff. Uh, you know, the, the, this is this is him trying to step up to the plate a little bit. Uh, and I noticed too; I had to rewind it to listen to this again because this was one of the 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 neat touches. There's a slow motion car explosion where the guy, one of the bad guys, breaks out a grenade launcher and blows up a car. The car goes flying. They cut to the slow motion. And if you listen very carefully in the slow motion, what you hear is what sounds like a Miles Davis jazz trumpet Hmm. for a couple of notes as the car is exploding. And like I said, I heard that and I sort of went, did I just hear Miles Davis? Wait, and backed it up and listened to it again. It's a cool, again, it's sort of a cool little thing to, to throw in there that makes it work. There's not enough of that, but I, but I liked it in this first scene. Yeah, the, the message of this opening scene is that the cops are outmatched. Uh, the gangs have gotten so big. The cops have pistols, and they've got the cool laser thing on there, but they're pistols nonetheless. And the gangs are these psychopaths with machine guns and Uzis, grenade launchers. How are we going to maintain law and order in the streets in 1997 when the gangs are this powerful? They need well, a RoboCop. It sets, yeah, it sets them up too, because the first thing we get after um, Detective Harrigan shows up defies a direct order to get the job done. Right. Which is what yes. We expect our cops in this kind of movie. Of course. Because um, he has a problem with authority. 
And, yes. uh, but so we get these guys who are kicking the cops asses. They retreat into this armory. That's just full of like, it's, it's a comical amount of guns and ammunition and drugs. And then the predator shows up and suddenly they're all dead. Uh, so I think a little bit of it is, is setting up how badass these guys are. And then what we, you know, and then, so when, when, Harrigan and, and Ruben Blades and, and those guys come in and all they see is a pile of dead bodies. You, you really understand they're kind of going, holy shit, what did this? Right. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think this very lavish and elaborate set piece opening sequence is designed to show us how serious the Predator is. Because if he can take out all of these uh, insane, coke-snorting, heavily armed Colombian gangsters, uh, you, it just shows you the kind of heavy hitters that he can take care of. Yeah. And of course, that's good. You know, classically, you want to set up the bona fides of your antagonist. The other thing that the movie is instantly letting you know is how broadly it's willing to play. This is a movie. It doesn't trust the audience to understand things with just a visual message. We get a lot of beats in which Danny Glover is asked to uh, kind of comment on things. So people in, in the cheap seats, quote unquote, will understand it. Uh, and kind of the exact same way that when in the first movie, uh, Schwarzenegger is buried in the mud and the Predator can't see him. And Schwarzenegger has to come out and just to let the audience know exactly what happened. He's like, you can't see me you know, or whatever. <laughs> in this movie, Danny Glover pulls up and he's like, oh, shit, things are really going down. So he pops up in his trunk and he's got all these guns and he grabs a pistol and he and he has to say out loud, not big enough or too small. You know, and so he gets a bigger gun, like like just putting down the smaller gun and picking up a bigger gun was enough for this movie. It's small, but we get enough of this in this film that it's kind of a signal as to where the rest of it's going to go. And then we cut to the Colombians and they're running inside. And what do Colombian gang gang members do in their spare time? Of course, what they have are giant piles of cocaine that they grab like big fistfuls of and squish into their faces. Oh, yeah, the main guy is so over the top. El Scorpio, the long haired dude. I loved him. Yeah. I loved him. I loved every second of that guy on screen. Yeah, he had a bit part in the first one, this actor. I believe the Dutch uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger gunned him down in the original. I just pulled up that guy, Henry Kingy, if I'm pronouncing Kingy. Kingy. Uh, am I pronouncing his name right? But I mean, dude, he has a massive resume. And so he, he's a stunt guy. He's been in fucking everything. Holy shit, dude. Wow. I, I, uh, I stretch from 1969 to, I mean, he's 72 years old now, but from 1969 to, I mean, no, he was just in Right Along 2. Uh, but I mean, this dude was a stunt. He's a stunt guy in basically like every action movie of the '80s and '90s. Like he's a, he's he's a significant guy, man. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I had no idea. I mean, he's somewhat recognizable facially, but he's not like that guy who's in all the John Carpenter movies. I'm totally forgetting his name, but right, you know, right. Big Trouble in Little China. He features the most uh, prominently. He's an Asian guy, but he just always is, you know, showing up as uh, sort of a dialogue-less uh, tough guy in the Carpenter films. Oh, this dude's got to have some stories to tell. Holy fuck. I bet. I bet. Yeah, we should uh, see if there's any interviews with him out there. Mm. So uh, you mentioned, Mike, the kind of stream of consciousness patter that Danny Glover's uh, Mike 
Harrigan has in this film. One of the hallmarks of bad dialogue is the unwillingness to trust the audience to understand anything unless they're told. It's a minor violation of the show-don't-tell core rule. Like, for instance, when, you know, jumping way ahead, at the very end, uh, Danny Glover is uh, clinging to the side of a building, He's in his climactic battle with the Predator. He gets surprised by some birds. You know, the, these birds come, go, blah, 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 blah. And he jumps back and he goes, Whew. But then he has to go, birds. <laughs> yeah, he's like, damn, birds. Yeah, he says, yeah. birds. Yeah, damn there's kind birds. of a, a, a fake, a very weak jump scare there. And then later on, he's again, that's all I need is birds. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and like out of nowhere, it becomes like this running thing, like Indiana Jones and snakes. Yeah. Like, like, that's how out out of nowhere is right. Like, <laughs> and even the, we set up in this initial scene uh, that he's afraid of heights. And I guess that kind of comes back at the end that he's afraid of heights and birds, but nothing really comes of it. Yeah. Um, it seemed more like a, you know, general human annoyances than specific Weaknesses, like I, I don't think that pigeons are Harrigan's kryptonite per se. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but all the all the commentary that he offers on everything he's doing, it's like yes. an audience member. He just keeps saying things like, "Why can't this guy stay on the ground?" Right? It's yes. like falling off a log. Yeah, he's yeah, just yeah, like yeah. stream of conscious pattering throughout the film, and I guess it's kind of you know the. It's not exactly what you're criticizing from a screenwriting standpoint. None of that is load-bearing. None of that is expo. None of that is like the first movie where we need to underline the beat that the Predator can't see Dutch because of the mud on his skin. This is all completely garbage, like meaning empty calories. It You don't need it. You could lose it. So I guess it becomes kind of a character quirk. And in that way, it, it's sort of charming. The hell of it is, I think that uh, watching it, there's a lot of some one-liners or throwaway one-liners and stuff that he gives in that muttering under his breath thing. And he does it really well in the Lethal Weapon movies. Uh, I, so it's, I, you know, I think it's something that Danny Glover does really well. I think it's just that he's asked to say really stupid inane things. Uh, yeah. I think if the dialogue was better, I think his delivery would work. Oh, yeah, definitely. No, no complaints about Danny Glover's performance yeah. here. Uh, and it's... You, you get that kind of thing on this roof where he goes, must be losing it after he spots that cloaked and camouflaged ripple of the Predator. But did he really? Then we establish that the Predator has killed off all of the cartel thugs. And you see one of the skin bodies, a la in the, in the first film. Uh, his nudity is strategically covered. Uh, I don't know why they just didn't shoot him from the other angle, but... Anyway, uh, you, you you see that, you know, the Predator, this Predator is kind of up to the same old tricks as the last one. Robert Davi appears on the street um, in this film. He's playing the higher up who hassles Harrigan. He shows up at the crime scene in his clean dress uniform, which is to show us the world that he operates in as a pencil pusher far from the action of the streets. Yeah, they, Danny they says, what brought you down from the palace? They specifically mention pencil pushing. Uh, and I, I, I couldn't tell if that was a callback to the first movie or if by a coincidence, this is just a franchise that has a dim view of pencils. <laughs> I don't think it's a coincidence because <laughs> there are multiple direct callbacks to the last movie. Right. In this film, yeah. Including dialogue. So it's a pencil pusher. Yeah. 
Yeah. And we get all that typical cop insubordination bullshit here. Very broad drama as Danny Glover and Robert Davi clash. Bunch of cop movie cliches. And, and there's no payoff with this Robert Davi character whatsoever. I mean, I know that guys like this were obligatory in movies like this back in, in those days, but it feels like something was cut from this script or something, because I don't believe he really, maybe he turns up once more again early or at the midpoint of the film, but he's almost unnecessary as a character. You could just have the captain passing along to Danny Glover that the higher-ups are pissed off and... You know, it, it just, this character goes absolutely nowhere, does he? Yeah, yeah, there's actually two Captain characters. There's yeah. Robert Bobby's character, and then there's uh, Catch the Cord, who plays Captain B. Pilgrim. And he's like the nice guy captain, and Davi is the mean captain. So it, it's weird that the two captains are good cop, bad cop captains. Like you just pointed out, we could have easily smushed those two characters into one guy. Because I, they're, they're both basically, you know, almost superfluous. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, they represent the uh, the pressure from above to leave this case alone. Yeah, that really cliche old saw aspect of the cop movie that we have to make prominent in this film for no apparent reason, I just to create tension. I'm sorry, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't at the end of this of that exchange with Robert Davi, it seems like Danny Glover's really going to hurt him. This is a scene where he really like throws <laughs> himself at him, and, right. and it takes a bunch of people at him. I mean, you know, you find out later in, again, the, the most needless of exposition when, when uh, Gary Busey calls up the file they have on Danny Glover and you find out that he's prone to violence and has a history of, you know, of, of abusing suspects and all this kind of stuff. But I wonder how much Danny Glover was really sort of throwing himself into the role by right early on we see him literally try to kill his superior officer. <laughs> It's so ludicrous. Like, I mean, back then yeah. he could, I guess he could have punched him a few times and, you know, no assault charges would be filed or I, I don't know in what reality that little altercation would result in him physically beating a uh, high ranking police official on the street. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, I came into this movie and I was trying to, like see the role through Danny Glover's eyes because the script doesn't give him anything. Harrigan is for that time a, a generic, you know, super violent, angry cop dude. You know, uh, he can't handle anything without like snarling at somebody or or attacking them. And of course, he's like wrecked like eleven squad cars and blah blah blah. Part of me at first was thinking, okay, this is a Murtaugh adventure in which we have kind of the straight man without the crazy guy. So we have kind of a, a more muted character at the center of it. It's that plus just the guy's anger. And uh, without any shame blackness to the screenplay or the dialogue, we, we don't get much in the way of like a, an actual personality or an inner life to the character at all. So I found myself wondering what this character does when he's not a cop on the streets. And uh, in all likelihood, he's got a divorced wife, probably a kid somewhere in the suburbs. Uh, was he doing his spare time? He probably sits around his apartment with a tumbler full of scotch and two ice cubes and listens to the blues. <laughs> yeah. I think he plays a saxophone on the fire escape. I think he sits in a bar and he watches ball games and he's got a favorite bartender and he mutters under his breath when the news comes on. <laughs> you know what, Mike? You just hit it, dude. This, so this is what happened. When the car exploded, 
Harrigan was on the fire escape playing the jazz trumpet. Oh, yeah, that's where that came from. Oh, yeah. And then he was like, holy shit, I got to get down there. In a weird way, it's also reminiscent of uh, Friday the 13th Part 5 in that characters very swiftly go to anger and violence. In, In their interactions with each other, they go from zero to screaming their heads off almost instantly and not always appropriately. I, Very I, seldom appropriately. Yeah. Another hallmark of our times back then was the TV, the trashy TV news magazine. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, it was funny that uh, Warren Downey Jr. was a thing at that time. Yeah. And, 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 they, and the, they, they probably considered this to be like, like kind of a coup in stunt casting. And That's I agree right. with that. I'm just like, I you know if you're going to have a Morton Downey Jr. type guy, why not get Morton Downey Jr.? And he, yeah. he's great. He's fantastic in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Again, an extraordinarily broad character, but he's playing the unctuous yellow journalist. You could yeah, that, that guy got gets out of you know, used to get out of bed as a broad character. The only thing he was the only thing uh, he was missing was a cigarette hanging out of his, uh, the corner of his mouth. <laughs> And the only thing that Danny Glover is missing is the, neither of the captains ask him to turn in his badge and gun. That is a shocker. Yeah, yeah. which in this movie I was actually really shocked by. Like, we did get a line where, that, along the lines of, you're too close to this, which is yeah. one of those classic uh, precursors to I'm taking you off the case. Yeah. So we get the chaotic police station next, a very elaborate shot with lots and lots of extras, uh, you know, all with various bits of business. And it's impressive from a production standpoint. And overall, I think they put a lot of juice into the first 20 minutes of this movie. Agree. The police station scene is the other aspect that gave me kind of a Robocop feel, you know, the chaotic Mm -hmm. police station where... All the nuts are, are crowding through the door, and the cops are just barely hanging on. And, you know, there's, yeah. like, a lot of attitude. You know, people are getting in, the, in everyone's faces and, like, yeah, 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 whatever, sit down. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. And there's, like, 47 hookers in this room. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was my thought was, wouldn't why wouldn't we just legalize prostitution? If this is what's overrunning our police force, like, if they can't get around to the cartels because there are 47 <laughs> prostitutes being arrested every day. Um <laughs> Uh, exactly. In the so, middle of all that, you have Bill Paxton trying to regale yes. this some secretary with his with his golf story. <laughs> yeah, the golf thing is is so lame. The way that golf becomes an aspect of his character, and they really try to make that pay off uh, towards the end of his participation in the film. That's I the forgot that Bill Paxton was in this movie. That's how long ago I saw it. That's the other Robocop element is uh, the idea that he comes in from kind of a suburban situation and he's looking to kind of make his bones by by transferring to a more dangerous division. And, and it opens with a chaotic police station scene and he's like the kind of more clean cut, more, you know, uh, the slightly goofier guy who shows up and immediately stands out because he's not, you know, as rough and tumble as everyone else yet. Like, I, I, there's like lots of weird little parallels Yeah, I think they obviously looked at RoboCop when they were writing this movie. I think there's a – we'll get to lots more of this because I think that this movie borrows heavily from just about everything. But if you look – just even at the casting, I think if you look at it, I think it borrows heavily from Aliens. 
Yeah. I think Bill Paxton is playing an even more cartoonish version of uh, Hudson here a little bit. Yep. Just in terms of being brash and overconfident and all this kind of stuff. Everything's his specialty. Um, <laughs> there's the scene where Gary Busey goes in and Harrigan is watching on the monitors, you know, on the cameras. Get your guys out of there. He can see them. I mean, and, and, you know, before he takes over and goes out, and may as well have changed his name to uh, Ripley for that scene. Yeah. Um, oh, that's beat and then for just, beat. Look, that is a yeah, complete ripoff of Aliens. Complete ripoff. But again, if you look at the other guys, you have Gary Busey from Lethal Weapon. You have Robert Davi from Die Hard. I mean, it's, it just seems like they sort of cobbled together little bits and pieces of all these other success, successful action movies. And just sort of thought if we throw it all together, maybe it will make a compelling action movie. Predator 2 is, in a lot of ways, very much part of the soup of mid-to-late 80s action sci-fi filmmaking. It's both of its time and place and scenario, uh, and also derivative of it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they don't really have a firm handle on their own vision, even of this setting. I mean, even like... The technology, the future technology that uh, is referenced by Bill Paxton's character a bit later, it feels like uh, this glancing just reference to a sci-fi concept rather than actually giving us one. Like, it, it's all shorthand that feels like somebody has seen other movies and they vaguely remember somebody using this phrase for some future tech or whatever, and they just kind of borrow that and hopefully people won't think about it too much like everything is borrowed it's like a a a carbon copy or a bad mimeograph to use a reference from the time of these better sci-fi action films (laughs) john would you say it's a substandard daguerreotype (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) guys nice work Back to Bill Paxton. Uh, yeah, in this film, he's playing a cop named Jerry, who also goes by the Lone Ranger. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because he, he, he got, uh, his partner died. So. Well, there's some kind of implication that he has kind of a cowboy attitude, and it was his recklessness that may have gotten his partner killed, or at least that's what Maria Conchita Alonso might think. Yeah, because uh, he, he's throwing her some game. And Ruben Blades and Danny Glover kind of laugh because they know that she's going to react violently to him. And she grabs him by the nuts and squeezes and gives him a threat. This is uh, very much of an era where, like, female characters can, like, grab dudes by the nuts <laughs> and, and inflict significant pain on them. And that's like a comedy beat. Yeah. Yeah. And it's never mentioned again. You know, I, I, right, right after that, their, uh, their relationship not only bounces back, but also warms up after that. That's actually, uh, Mike, though. One of the things I would say, because another element of this that felt borrowed specifically from Aliens, was I think Maria Conchito Alonso reminds me a lot of Vasquez. Yeah. Uh, and so they, the interaction that they have later uh, when she sees him is she says, how are your balls? And he says, fine, how are yours? Which, which just felt like dialogue borrowed from, hey, Vasquez, has anyone ever mistaken you for a man? Yeah, exactly. Vic, um, I had the exact same thought. Because she, she even has the short haircut. I mean, you know, obviously not the, you know, not the, the buzz cut, but still. Yeah, so. which doesn't favor her at all. Uh, in, in terms of costume and wardrobe uh, and hair, I, I think that was a, 
that was an unfortunate choice because she's such a beautiful woman that the, the hairstyle that they chose for her doesn't do her any favors at all. Yeah, well, again, costumes, hair, every, all of those departments should have been fired. Well, but that's, I'm just saying, but that's, listen, that's shorthand for the, you know, the tough Latina who doesn't take any shit from anybody. Right. Um, yeah. um, which is, you know, which was, in, that shorthand was invented, I think, by aliens, because I don't yes. know that anybody did that really before. The shorthand is the short hair. Yeah. Well, this is where Bill Paxton began to get typecast as a slick and sleazy fast talker. And I think that it was only things like uh, Carl Franklin's one false move that allowed him to branch out and become the much more versatile actor we know he is. This is a movie that kind of reaches for the most obvious choice uh, a lot of Always. times. And, yeah, they, they sit down, they look at the script, they go, the Lone Ranger Jerry, is, he's kind of a slick, goofy, comic relief, fast talker guy. Uh, we're going to get well, there's Bill Paxton and uh, Bill Paxton. And I think Bill Paxton might be a good idea. Right, right. So after some more Danny Glover getting hassled, uh, he finally sits down with the new guy, Bill Paxton, and he says the door swings both ways. And this becomes some kind of a callback in the film. And I, I, I don't know what the hell it means exactly. Is there some thematic resonance here that I'm missing? No. Uh, okay. I didn't think so. There's a weird lighting choice. And again, this guy goes to the inherent dumbness of this movie because – in this office that he's sharing with Ruben Blades, you know, the windows are wide open. The sunshine is pouring in. You know, it's a hot day. We're doing a heat wave XYZ. And then when it's time for him to sit down, I, I guess Danny Glover took uh, a few minutes to, to pull the blinds so he could give himself dramatic chiaroscuro lighting. And, and, and then, and, and then he, uh, he sits in the corner so he's only half in light. So it's like they, they go from, like, like super blasted out light. You know, so suddenly he's uh, Colonel Kurtz. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but he's uh, he's also a benevolent uh, leader, so uh, yeah. he, he welcomes Bill Paxton, and, and I do like that immediately Paxton becomes a valuable part of the team with all of his uh, various specialties kind of paying off on the street, and I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. If I skip over something, you guys can jump back to it, but uh, we introduced the hotel, the ex- or. Uh, Actually, no, I don't think it's a hotel. We introduced the expensive apartment of the Colombian cartel boss. And it's obviously a set, and it really reminds me, strangely enough, of the pyramid in Aliens vs. Predator. Uh, I don't know if you guys would have noticed that, but in any case, it's a really weird take on uh, the design for something that's supposed to be in the immediate future. I'll give them points for ballsiness on that. Yeah, it's a very specific Mesoamerican decor. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, but grand, very lavish, that's for sure. So we have this turf war going on between this Jamaican voodoo gang and the Colombian cartels or whoever they are. And uh, the, the Jamaicans make a big move here, a big play. And the cartel guy is uh, hung up, uh, very predator-like, actually, and they rip out his heart. And soon thereafter, uh, the predator actually shows up and takes out the Jamaicans. So we get to see more of the predator's new toys as he slaughters them. He's got a net-type weapon and this big spear thing, and he wipes out the voodoo guys. 
there are six guys who get hung up. One, one guy has his heart pulled out. The other guys are skinned. So uh, it, it seems like they're all of a piece of the massacre. But I think it's Ruben Blades who points out, you know, the slight difference. But what is you the know, point of that? And that that's another one of these little things throughout this film that seem completely pointless in that it's almost constructed as though the cops piecing together these various bits of evidence and, you know, gradually realizing what they're dealing with here and that this is, you know, a, a killer from another planet and all of that is, is, is important narrative stuff, but the audience knows all of it. <laughs> so what's yeah, the point? It's mostly just an excuse to fill running time with a little bit of story. It's a very thin plot in this film. Extremely thin plot. Yeah. Uh, oh, another bad writing thing. Now, a, a court, apparently Bill Paxton is from the Rampart Division, which is also in Los Angeles. I mean, I heard them use the word Rampart. He's not from Nebraska or something. He doesn't know who King Willie is. Like, when the police show up to this crime scene, he he basically asks who King Willie is. And, and that's so that we can get a weak expo dump of information the audience doesn't have, which is who's King Willie, as if it frickin' matters. Yeah. The, uh... Even though more... Junior knows. If you were to remove the Predator, you would still have a movie. Just a much more generic movie of that time. It feels like this is, like, like Predator is actually jumping into another movie. So I've mentioned in the past. I dig it when a horror movie feels like there's a drama to be had. You would still have a movie if, you, if the haunting never occurred. Well, because you bring that up so much, and I don't want to get too much into a, a tangent yeah. here, but yeah. all of this makes me wonder if there really is an objective value in that. I mean, you always say, like, this would be a good movie without the without the, the horror element, without the supernatural element, and obviously this would not be a good uh, movie without, <laughs> without the Predator. <laughs> but, I mean, do, do, do you think that it's possible that, like, every horror movie could be another movie without the supernatural element. I guess the question is just, because there's always other things going on, the question is just always, would it be a good one or not? I think most good horror movies would be a movie if you took away the haunting. Yeah. Like, uh, if, if, with, if you... Uh, with this film, I think... Holy shit. Vic, you Might sound... Might go. <laughs> <laughs> you, you sound like a broken robot. It's not, it, I mean, it comes and goes. Sometimes his audio is good. I mean, Mike, you didn't hear him when he was on the phone. It's the Timmy's at the bottom of the well. And I mean, I, I know that, that at least it's somewhat more stable, but it, it does sound really wretched. Whereas what he's doing now, like now and then he's fine for a period of time. Yeah. I, I don't know what's going on, but right now, Vic, it's like talking to a toaster <laughs> who's, who's communicating through an old Walkman. Yeah, Vic, go ahead and try it. Try it. Try to make your point. Okay. Mm. Um, <laughs> what's interesting else. about this? Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, let's all be quiet. Just let him talk, and then let's see if uh, let's see if we can hear him or not. Otherwise, we'll switch to the phone. Okay, Vic. Yeah, you can try. You can try calling mm. back too. Try what? <laughs> try what? No. Should we hang up and dial back in? Uh, yeah, let's try that first. Let's try that first. Let's let's see if we can just get you on the better. All right, I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna remove you. Okay, Vic. You sound like a techno song sampling a speaking spell. <laughs> hey, Vic. Hey. Okay, let's just go with this. 
what's interesting to me about this movie is we actually know what it would be without the Predator because it would be marked for death. <laughs> and, that's not a, and that's not a good movie. Yeah, no, uh, well, I, I would disagree with you on that one. Yes. Well, yeah. we do have a callback to the first film right here because there's a survivor the naked, formerly full frontally naked girlfriend of yes. the gangster <laughs> is yes. alive, and she whispers "El Diablo" to explain <laughs> what happened here. And we get the immortal uh, line: "We got a new player in town." It's, it's too bad she wasn't saying a, a big pussy joke, but <laughs> <laughs> that's the one thing they didn't take from the first film. Yeah. Oh, okay, and then we get a very jarring thing from me, and I know that Mike will understand what uh, what I'm referencing here. We get the line, the last person in the world you want to fuck with. I was just about to say that, dude. Holy fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, Ice Cube samples this line on death certificate. Adam Baldwin <laughs> uh, from Firefly and a lot of other things. His character is Garber in this film. Uh, he says that about Gary Busey's character, who, of course, we learn now is in charge. And Captain Pilgrim has said that uh, Harrigan is going to need to do whatever special agent Peter Keyes of the DEA needs him to do, which is stay out of this case. And then Another, Glover says, I mean, which means you're cutting off my dick and jamming it up my ass. Yeah. <laughs> Another 80s movie cliche where the... The feds come in and take over the investigation. Yeah. I do also, I have a, I have thought, and I, maybe I'm making this up. You know, so his name there, Peter Keys, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the fed who comes in to take care of the alien in E.T. is also named Mr. Keys. Do you think that that's a, is that a coincidence or is that actually a, uh, is he like the, the anti-Peter Coyote? Well, we feel like this, the writers of this film, and maybe the producers as well, we're just drawing on everything remotely applicable. So it's certainly a possibility. Exactly. Uh, and, and they do have like this symbol on like their everything, even though they're posing as DEA, Gary Busey's character has this logo on his tie, um, this symbol front and center that would indicate that he's part of some other kind of unit. And I think at some point we get the name of it or whatever, but it, it's just a really dumb way to suggest that there's some special unit here that these guys are actually a part of, which is they are here for the predator. They want to take him back for study, just like in Aliens. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. they, they make also reference that what they want is his scientific technology, which yeah. is just hysterically bad. I love that. Uh, there is, in fact, later on, there's a scene in which Danny Glover is in the police station and he sees Gary Busey kind of walking along and, and accosts him. Uh, that's the one where he kind of grabs him by the lapels and throws him against the wall. You know what yep. I'm talking about? Of course. And if you guys watch... Before he gets accosted, uh, Gary Busey is walking along with like a, a giant file in his hands that's labeled Predator. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't see that it was labeled Predator. He flips it open and he's reading it as he's going. But Yeah, this is a really hush-hush operation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, you bring up that line and that's the other kind of broader takeaway that I found in this film, uh, you know, that it kind of applies to generic cop dialogue as a whole. You know, when higher up cops get hassled by other, by superiors or, or other jurisdictions, they immediately go to anal references. 
It's always my my ass got chewed out. I just got the mayor out of my ass. Uh, Somebody's getting bent over in every yeah, scenario. The captain's up my ass about this. They're chewing on my ass about this. Uh, you know, they're you're tearing off my dick and putting it up my ass. It's, I'll ram this so far up your ass that it'll yeah. pop out your mouth or whatever. Yes. yes. And what is with that weird homoeroticism of confrontation between police officers? They immediately go to things going up each other's ass. It's just a cliche, you know? It just somehow it became a cliche, and bad writers resort to cliches. Dude, I'd love to do a cop movie where the captain keeps going back to that so much that he becomes like Tobias Funk. You know, <laughs> that the other character's like, dude, I don't know. <laughs> or like Mac in uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the mayor's really up my ass on this. He put his dick in my ass. He's just swirling it around and fucking pumping my ass really hard about this. He shoots up my ass. And the other like, <laughs> And he came on my stomach. Yeah, he crazy. <laughs> So they want a new era of scientific technology. And I I guess to be fair, at least it's not consumer technology. Like it would have been sillier if they were looking to clone the predator's iPhone or something like that, but they're going to, that's what they do in men in black. It's the idea that this is like kind of a proto men in black. Yeah. Right. No, that's, that's true. Yeah. So they're going to dispatch poor Ruben blades character who's named Danny to set out on this mission to go back to the crime scene alone late at night. And this the outcome of this was pretty telegraphed for me. I mean, what exactly he's trying to glean doesn't seem that important. Why would he go alone? I don't know. You know he's meat at this point. But and, when Harrigan says to him, hey, don't try any hero stuff, I was like, oh, fuck, he's dead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Well, uh, in this beat, the movie is shifting in its cliché situation from action to horror because the characters are splitting up they're wandering off alone that's right absolutely and and they do kind of try to build it as a tension building set piece a suspense scene that leads up to a kill as uh ruben blaze's character is searching for that spear tip hook shaped thing that the predator shot and it got embedded in a ac vent and obviously it's alien technology so He's he's going after that, and Predator makes his move, and Ruben Blades is begging, please no. We get some blood dripping on his necklace, and uh, he's killed off screen, which I guess is a little more creepy in this instance. I didn't like him going out that week, though. You know, no, he, he immediately devolves into whimpering. Like I, 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 really, I, I wish that he had put up more fight. Yeah. I like the beat when he's falling though, and he reaches out and he grabs the predator's arm, and he can't, you can't see what he's grabbed what he's grabbed hold of. Uh, yeah, he I grabs the a, invisible nice camouflaged arm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was that was a nice touch. Yeah, although good point. is it me, guys, or is the predator less camouflaged in this? Yes, they really. I felt like he was much more obvious. Absolutely, well, see, they establish in the mythology in this movie that if he gets wet, it fucks with his invisibility. Mm-hmm. I guess it uh, rains a lot in L.A. And the later scene in which he goes after King Willie, when he walks through the deep puddle, uh, we get 80s lightning going around in him, and suddenly we can see him a little bit. Uh, there are a couple other beats, uh, like, uh, oh, later on in the uh, in the slaughterhouse, uh, when the sprinklers come on, it bucks with his invisibility. 
so he can't turn yeah. invisible anymore. He gets a little 80s lightning bolts on him, and then he's suddenly invisible, which made me laugh because they established this this piece of mythology, and I immediately thought, oh, this and Signs are the two movies in which uh, an advanced race of aliens are defeated by water. Maybe uh, we don't want this technology. I mean, maybe uh, it's not that advanced. This yeah, camo system is always going on the fritz. It's more well, like Windows 95. It's yeah, crashing all the fucking time in both movies. Yeah, that's the other thing, too. Gary Busey makes a big deal out of the advanced weaponry that they've put together to defeat the Predator in that scene. And they, they have the guns that will coat Predator in a thing that will make him visible. It's supposed to be like this super science thing. It's a prototype, da-da-da-da-da. And even when Gary Busey gets back up, that's his first thing, is instead of shooting the Predator, he sprays him with the thing so he can't turn invisible. But we've already established that water will turn invisible. So the super science thing that Gary Busey has, and he's so proud of, has the exact same plot function as a super soaker. Well, wait, I thought he was trying to freeze him with, I thought that was liquid nitrogen, remember? Because he yeah. said, you're... You're not trying to kill him. You're trying to freeze him. Right, uh, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, he does have liquid nitrogen. So there's an autopsy scene, which is also pointless after they've found uh, Ruben Blades dead. I guess this is to tell the characters that we're dealing with some otherworldly shit here, which, again, the audience already knows. The coroner notes that the material the Predator's weapon is made of does not correspond with any element on the periodic table. And it has almost no weight, despite cutting like steel. You don't buy it in a hardware store. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I did like it when the uh, uh, when the computer tells us unknown. Yeah. Flashes on the screen. That was nice. There isn't a beat of awkward comic relief goodness here where the medical examiner says, please do not touch anything. And Bill Paxton gets nervous about being admonished and he breaks this glass beaker or something. Yeah, it's a jar with like a brain in it. (laughs) 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 So we get out of that sequence and Glover and Paxton are on the street and they're wearing these costumes that might as well have come out of L.A. Confidential. It's like L.A. of the 1950s with their their suits and their hats. And it just doesn't feel futuristic. Yeah, both of them are wearing fedoras in this one. uh, Maybe the implication is that in 97, fashion has come full circle. Yeah, I think the the, the 55-year-old screenwriter probably wants that to be true. (laughs) But uh, I don't recall seeing fedoras in any other scene. So it's just like this one scene where out of nowhere the characters, not one, but both characters decide that it's time to break out their fedoras and put them on. (laughs) No. It's hilarious. It would so, be funny if uh, Maria Cucina Alonso then, then like joins them and she's got a fedora too. <laughs> and a zoot suit. <laughs> <laughs> so it's time for Danny Glover to go meet up with King Willie and the Jamaican gang because he thinks that'll shed some light on this. And he gets in this zebra print rag top and the Jamaicans inside are smoking massive amounts of weed. Yeah. Everybody's got this big doobie and it's like literal, literally the character says, you want some ganja, mom? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just in I, case I, you didn't know what it was. Yeah. <laughs> right. Those joints were fantastic. Hilariously stereotypical crap. When they arrive at the alley and Danny Glover gets out and he says, uh, you know, it's something like... Uh, you guys should think about cutting down. Although it did occur to me, it's like anybody who's subjected to that level of hot boxing is probably going to be pretty baked. And, but we, yeah. we, don't, we don't get any sense of that because he's such a tough cop. He's immune to uh, perils of weed smoke. That was my feeling. Yeah. 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 
So meanwhile, the Predator is watching all of this like Batman on a building. You know, he's kind of perched above everything. It's also kind of like a gargoyle. And you do get the vibe that he's stalking everyone. And and that is kind of cool. And it creates a little bit of suspense as uh, our our lead walks down the alley. And he goes to meet up with King Willie, who looks basically like I would imagine Millie Vanilli's dad to look. But uh, uh, I, 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 I did look up that actor, and he's from Nassau. Oh. Yeah, I, you know, yeah. Um, two things jumped out at me about this scene. Uh, when Dan Glover goes in, A, it's so obviously an alley set on one of the lots. Yeah. Uh, and B, when King Wade reveals himself, apparently he was, like, crouched behind a dumpster. <laughs> so, so, because they do want the character to kind of come out of the shadows, but the alley, but the alley is too well lit. So, yeah, leader of this huge, powerful, fearsome gang does in fact find himself crouched behind a dumpster in an alley, so he can have a meeting with the cop. But I, I do like the idea that um, even though the cops and, and the gangsters are at war, in certain scenarios they can kind of reach across the the wire. Mm-hmm. Uh, under like a specific scenario like this one, like it's really clear that you know, and you know, something is haunting both of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my enemy's enemy is my friend. That I actually thought was kind of cool and interesting. But nothing comes out of this partnership. I mean, Willie goes, "This is dread, man. Truly dread," which yeah. is like made-up slang. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe the writers just got stuck on the Jamaican guy's dreadlocks or something. But they were having this sit-down or this this meet, and all we get is there's something unnatural about the Predator. He's not dealing with a human being. I mean, isn't that the takeaway of this? I mean, what occurred to me about this scene is that King Willie is Billy from the first movie. Mm-hmm. He comes out, he does, he, you know, he, instead of doing, you know, Indian things, he does, like, voodoo things. Uh, <laughs> and then ten seconds later, you don't even, they, 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 he literally has the same sort of confrontation where he pulls out his sword, and then they cut away and we hear him scream. Well, this was um, one of the few things I liked about the film was how they staged this actually better than the demise of Billy, I think, because there's this kind of cool audio bridge from King Willie's mumbo jumbo to his scream. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it sort of dissolves, I think, or something into his like frozen rictus expression as the predator carries off his severed head. John, you're absolutely right. You're putting your finger on. Yeah, that is like a straight up, honestly, kick ass fucking beat. I, yeah. It's a great beat, but all I thought of, and this is this is no one's fault, but all I thought of was the end of Freddy versus Jason, when Jason's <laughs> walking away carrying right. Freddy's head, and I was like, oh, <laughs> you ruined you ruined something else cool for me. Well, they uh, <laughs> they they did they did it first at least. So, yeah. and you do get to see the hunter's trophy taking technology as he turns that head into a nice polished skull. Then we have more recycling of the score, uh, and it takes on a whole new dimension when we get to this cemetery scene where Danny Glover is visiting Reuben Blade's grave, and the Mac and Blaine music from the first film that kind of was about their, the relationship of these two soldiers plays note for note, and it's very patriotic and sort of military in its sound. Totally out of place for L.A. cops, in my mind. I mean, I was wondering, why couldn't they come up with some sentimental theme that isn't ripped straight from the other score? 
I was amused that, again, we find the Predator kind of finding a place to perch invisibly and watch. Uh, and in this case, because it's a, a sun-drenched, grassy cemetery, he has to find, like, this tiny little tree in the middle, <laughs> of, <laughs> in the middle of the thing. And the thing with the kid, though, yeah, was cool. Because yeah. uh, the kid gets out of the car, and uh, he's got a toy Uzi. For a moment, I thought we were going to get a beat out of Assault on Precinct 13. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I had that exact same thought, Mike. The um, Assault on Precinct 13 scene early in the film where this little girl with an ice cream cone gets shot. And it's just so shocking. And this would have been something like that. And it it kind of would have made sense, too. But no, Predator only uh, steals the kid's uh, line. Want some candy? So that we can repeat that ad nauseum. And later on, uh, he spares Maria Kachia Alonso's life because he can tell that she's pregnant. So uh, I, I think between this beat and that one, uh, it's shown that the Predator is like, you know, he's on safari. He's not, you know, just a blind mass murderer. He's going after, you know, actual dangerous prey. Right, right. I mean, that is something established in the first film. But those are all elements, I think, we talked about one of the things this film does well is building up the the predator-ness of it and sort of fleshing him out a little bit as a character. And that's one of those things where, it's, you know, all right, well, we've established that he kind of won't kill you if you're not armed. So, you know, we see him checking the gun on this kid to make sure that it's, you know, okay, it's actually explained, whatever. Same thing with Marie Conchita Alonso. We're fleshing that idea out. The predator has a, a, a weird kind of code that he hunts by. Yeah, they, they, uh, like when, when he massacres that subway car full of people, at first they're just like, why did he kill all these people? And, oh, yeah, they were all armed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is kind of cool thematically, and, and that's another thing like the global warming thing that resonates today, the idea that, you know, we might be moving towards a society where everyone is carrying a gun. Yeah. And, and, and how fucked up that would be, like how uh, some of the unintended consequences. I mean, clearly it's simply metaphorical. We're not actually going to have a predator come and kill us because we're we're carrying a gun. But it, it is somewhat uh, representative of, of, of an idea there that I, I think resonates. If you're comparing the predator and the alien and their mythologies, I mean, I guess that like the main distinguishing trait of the predator is this, what we're talking about, right? I mean, this is the most interesting thing about the predator is it's its specific rules about who it will and will not kill and why it kills is, is very cool. I think what part of what works about both franchises in general and where they, I mean, you know, where things the tails off is, uh, that the, these weird alien antagonists are not just treated as monsters, that there's thought that goes into them, that they develop as characters over the, over the course of the film. Yeah, I mean, the alien is motivated by, like, that basic primal animal, but also human desire to protect their, their own, you know, to, to yeah. have a family and to protect your children and to thrive as a species. That's that's all they're motivated to do. They're not truly sadistic in any way. Uh, I mean, you could make some arguments, but here and there. But then, then, then the predator, like, it's doing its theme because it glorifies... I guess you could say traditionally manly violence, you know, or the idea of going toe to toe with a worthy adversary in this very primal, primitive way, the way that like we would glorify, 
the beasts of the jungle being, well, yes, they kill, but they're a magnificent hunter and that sort of process is an honorable one, you know, or is one that we respect. It, it has a very kind of native cultural relationship with the idea of a predator, the word predator. What popped into my head when you were talking, John, was a man in black pajamas, dude, a worthy <laughs> adversary. <laughs> right, right. The respect but that, between but killers. But it's that same feeling of it's just because, you know, I'm hunting you doesn't mean that there, it, it isn't done with a certain measure of respect and some kind of, however bizarre, sort of moral code. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's kind of why they give Danny Glover this flintlock pistol at the end of the film. You know, it's yeah. like mm -hmm. a good on ya. There's no value to them killing pregnant women or children or uh, people who aren't armed. They're not collecting just trophies. They're also collecting stories with which they can regale their peers and thereby establish themselves in the hierarchy of their society. This is how they prove themselves to each other. Yeah, I mean, and it is kind of this empty, vain, uh, head-on-a-wall form of hunting. I mean, they don't eat their prey. Like, all of it is very vainglorious. You know, it, it, it's... It's trophies in that in that very egotistical kind of a way. Like I don't see a lot of a lot to admire in what the predators are doing. And if anything, I would just kind of think of it the way that we think of, you know, hunters that go shoot lions and, you know, because it's proving their own manliness. There's no mm -hmm. social benefit to what the predators are doing. Yeah, I, you know, I, there, there's a structure to how they approach things, but you know, what you just touched on is what makes them antagonists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not like this wonderful society that we could learn to to get along with. They're very petty and and violent in their own way, the way that we are in in, in many ways. Bill Paxton heroically sacrifices himself on the subway train to buy time for Maria Conchita Alonso and others to uh, evacuate the subway car because they need her help to do that. Nobody really understands how to leave a train because there's so many exits you could choose. It's so confusing. The uh, Get these people out of here, B. Yep, yep. Yeah. And we get some Predator Vision kills, POV kills, as the Predator is taking out these various armed people. Uh, making its way to Bill Paxton. And we have a lot of echoes of aliens in Bill's last stand, his badass moment here. And he's he's more brave in this one from start to finish. Um, Vic, you mentioned that he's basically Hudson in a lot of ways. This certainly feels like Hudson's demise and the music evokes aliens. Uh, his last stand is uh, brave, but there's no use. And I'm not sure why Predator appears to be bulletproof here. He's not later, yeah. but ba Paxton blazes away at him without doing any damage whatsoever. He even yeah. throws a golf ball at it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would love to if the golf ball had, had done him some harm in some way. But yeah, uh, this the sequence does give us, at least for me, one of the other cool images the lights are strobing, and we get the Predator in Inviso vision coming down the, the car toward Bill Paxton. And that's just a cool fucking shot, man. I mean, it looks yeah. really fucking awesome. And, uh, yeah, I, but he unloads, like, a full clip on him. Then in he, this very he, narrow space. Yeah, and then he reloads, unloads that clip, and then reloads again and unloads that clip. And I was like, yeah, there's no way that he's missing. So he should my, have had a laser sight on his gun. Yeah, my. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
guess he's such a new guy to this division. They didn't give him his laser sight. I thought yet. that was standard issue in this department. Yeah, but he should have gotten I, uh, that when he got to the station. Maybe the Predator's scale mail armor is tough enough to withstand like a certain degree of punishment. But and not. No, like I mean, a, it's not like his. He's more armored in this sequence, and then when Danny Glover does does tremendous damage to him later, like. But that is a uh, point blank with uh, shotgun. a pump action shotgun, and that that's kind of how I was selling myself on this beat in a way that the movie doesn't bother to. Yeah. So Paxton buys it, and then the Predator uses his sonogram vision to detect the baby on. Maria Conchita Alonso and lets her go. And in the aftermath, you know, Danny Glover's racing around yelling at people and shows up and, you know, figures out that everyone who's dead was armed. And in this movie, it's so important that characters learn things long after the audience does. We still have to hit those yeah. beats really hard. My favorite bit about this, this the tail end of this scene, because it, it obviously leads up to the, uh, the slaughterhouse sequence, but that there's all these cops, the past, the, the bodies are in bags, the Emmys there, like there's all these people running around, but only Danny Glover sees the trail of blood leading out of the tree car and down the tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> kind of rewinding a little bit, the subway setup of the sequence, it feels very 80s New York. I, I mean, if we're going to talk about like a Death Wish-ish moment, it's this one. Uh, Manhattan. Yeah, exactly. It feels really, really lifted from a New York action thriller uh, in, ter in terms of the sensibilities. Like, it doesn't feel L.A. at all. And uh, we, we have this very extremely over-the-top, broadly colorful gang, and they hassle the guy. And what do you know? It turns out that he's like kind of a Bernard Getz-type dude. He, he's got a gun in his in his briefcase, and even, like, even then he's nervous. And then what do you know? They might as well have named this character Bernard Getz. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you can tell that it's like, yeah, well, if he's like a Bernard Getz-type guy. And uh, then... It turns out that everybody else in this car has a gun. And, uh, John, I, you, you had some pushback to it. I actually felt that, it, I mean, th this is like another like kind of RoboCop-ish beat in which it feels more broadly satirical than anything else. Uh, it's, we're, you know, this very slightly future vision of our society in which, like, uh, the streets are so dangerous that everybody has a pistol, even though it's meant probably to be like kind of satirical. At the same time, it's what gets all these civilians killed by the Predator. Well, at this moment in time, I mean, again, like not being a 15-year-old boy, I mean, I think that that's actually my favorite thing of the movie is sort of the foreshadowing of our, our future elements. I think there's something very thematically interesting to the idea that we might all be packing heat someday. You know, this movie is global warming and guns, and I, I feel like... In 2027, maybe our world will look a little bit more like this. And so that aspect of it uh, is something that I appreciate. Actually, well, they also foresaw a subway in Los Angeles, and that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it <laughs> happened. It, that, they did not have that in 1990, but in 1997, they had the, the MTA here. So they were right about that. <laughs> So um, Morton Downey Jr. shows up to be insensitive and, you know, again, he's this, if it bleeds, it leads kind of ratings horror. And he literally says, more victims, more mutilation. Uh, and, and this character to me is like Peck in Ghostbusters. You know, he exists to be destroyed by our hero uh, and, and for the audience to cheer when he gets himself knocked out and, you know, Danny Glover just punches him and decks him. 
Well, except that Peck has more of an impact on the plot. That's true. I mean, that's the, the, Down, the Morton Downey character does nothing. It serves no purpose. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, ordinarily, uh, you would use a character like that for uh, a piece of exposition or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's got a chunk of the Predator on tape. But yeah, no. He's neither a supporting antagonist or helpel in any way. Like, he's, yeah. he, 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 you're he's right, he's there. completely irrelevant. He's there to give the movie a little bit of color and to give the movie, like, a obnoxious guy for a protagonist to slug and for the audience to go, yeah, punch that dude. Oh, yeah. I mean, in many ways, this is a very, you know, not to not to use political terms, but kind of a red state uh, populist rabble-rousing kind of a film that gives you a lot of just really, really... Um, manipulative, obviously manipulative, let's cheer kind of beats. In this well, story. you know, what's funny is, I, you know, Warren Downey Jr.'s show, I mean, that was very much a sensibility where it yeah. was bringing the WWE to to a talk show format. You know, yeah, we're, we're going to shout, you know. Absolutely true. So we get a very King Kong-like visual as Predator starts climbing this building. Uh, it's labeled very clearly as the Eastern Building, which doesn't really exist. But he's he's climbing this building with Bill Paxton's bloody bones, and it also looks very Ghostbusters because we get some lightning and you know on the cityscape, and Predator celebrates his victory with a primal scream and a victory pose. It's a cool shot. It's a little dumb, but it's also cool. The gruesomeness of him pulling out. Bill Paxson's head and spine. Yeah. I appreciated that. I thought that was, that was pretty rad. So did I. So did I. Yeah, I mean, again, the visuals of this film, a, a lot of elements are, are pretty much first class and give you some little flickers of enjoyment along the way. So Harrigan gets hassled by the agents of Gary Busey, and they're brought to this trailer. He's brought to this trailer for this long-awaited confrontation with Gary Busey's character, which feels kind of late in the movie for that. Again, Busey's not been a big part of the story either. Uh, He's had only a couple of scenes up to this point. But now, finally, he gets to chew on some scenery. Uh, He's toned down very much so, I mean, in this movie. There's nothing particularly colorful about his character. Yeah, a couple of the one-liners towards the end. But anyway, we got a lot of fancy silver suits in this high-tech trailer. Everybody's gathered around in the nerve center for some exposition. And we get the tie-in to the 1987 storyline where they sort of recount what happened in the jungle with Dutch and his team. And we also get this little um, nugget of information. The explosion at the end of the first movie covered 300 city blocks. But as you remember, Dutch was able to run to a safe distance in like five seconds. I, I love the uh, the measurements in city blocks was, was amusing <laughs> to me. Uh, I, I derived some secondhand amusement from Busey gets that line. Lines, tigers. And bears. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, my. And, and, and you can tell that the movie is really proud of itself yeah. for that line. <laughs> you, can, you, you can almost see the movie going, see, we've got cool lines, too. <laughs> There's another line here that I know you guys will recognize uh, the, the reference. You admire the son of a bitch. Yeah. 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 yeah, I, yeah it's yeah, Ash, it's- an alien. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They sat down, they looked at uh, Alien and the Aliens and the first Predator, and they said, yeah, let's make one of those. <laughs> yeah. Although, isn't it also, I couldn't figure this out, why when Harrigan shows up now, they just inexplicably are like, you know what, let's just tell him everything. 
We'll let him let, let him we'll let him in the big secret we'll let him in the big secret room. We'll tell him about the alien. He's made it this far. I guess he's earned it. Yeah, let's just open the kimono. Yeah. My read on that was they realized that they're not gonna shake this guy and they might as well and, and also they're they're close enough to kind of pulling the trigger on their capture of the predator thing that doing something to get rid of him would, would divert their attention. So there's like, well, you know, let's just have him stand in the corner. It's fine. But I figured like they've got to shoot him after that. Right. Well, that's kind of the thing is earlier. Busey tells him point blank that he can make him disappear. And then yeah. later Adam Baldwin is like, should we, should I take care of him? And Busey's like, no, no, no. Yeah. I mean, there, there are multiple references to the idea that even though he's a decorated lieutenants in the LAPD, like, they can make this dude vanish. He can go into a hole in the desert. Well, I, I did kind of have the feeling that they, they let him in on it here, was my vibe. Yeah. Yeah. But then at the end, again, just to jump ahead, but this, is, this sort of highlights the same weird inconsistency with this, this government agency that they work for, right? Adam, Adam Baldwin stops him, and he's like, we were so close! And then he gets in the in the helicopter and flies away, and I'm like, the guy that's just been inside an alien ship, you're just going to leave him here. You, yeah. you don't want to take him away and ask him some questions. You don't have, any, so you don't have anything you want to tell him not to let, not, you know, keep, you know, at least he doesn't say, you know, don't, don't tell anybody about this. <laughs> yeah. it's, beyond, it's beyond silly at that point. So, yeah, let's talk about this at least, you know, fairly cool sequence in the meatpacking plant. Yeah. Uh, where apparently the predator goes for snacks because he does have a taste for beef. Um, and it's kind of a cool location, this sort of meat locker vibe, lots of hanging racks of meat like uh, the ones that Rocky used to beat on. And Busey says, like, uh, that he's been coming here to eat or whatever. And he, Busey has the line, it's taken us over two weeks to learn his patterns. <laughs> yeah, <that's> like, <laughs> yeah. Like those two weeks were like this massive thing. <laughs> but uh, there is a certain visual resonance to the way the predator hangs up his victims and skins them. When, when he fights humans, this is how he takes his trophy, skins them. And I can never quite figure out the skinning part because we don't see like uh, human skins like hanging on walls. Like there's no human skin rug anywhere. Um, doesn't it's a look lampshade. Like yeah, it doesn't look look like they're turning them into like clothing or lampshades or anything. Um, you know, but you know, earlier we have humans strung up and they're skinless, and now we have this sequence in which they're cattle and they're strung up and they're skinless. Do you think he eats the skin? Is that what you're implying? Like, where where's the skin go? I don't know. I don't think that the movie's ever quite figured out. What... He makes burritos. Well, like you don't break out your human skin coat just. On any old day, you save that for you know the ball, the but, Predator uh, Awards. I think, yeah. Busey uh, <laughs> <laughs> and his team then leave Baldwin and Glover to watch their sneaking creep from the mobile headquarters into the field, and <coughs> aliens. <coughs> so they. Uh, they do re come to regret messing with the Predator at lunchtime because uh, they have these all this technology we've kind of hinted at, one of which is uh, they're wearing these suits that will prevent their body heat from radiating 
radiating out their their insulated body heat uh, retaining suits so that the predator's uh, vision will not be able to pick up their heat signature. And we get the predator beating that by just tapping on his wrist thing and changing uh, the spectrum of vision. So now it sees their flashlights and it wins by pulling out another layer of technology. And this is another sort of uh, when you juxtapose Predator to the Alien franchise. Unlike the Xenomorph, this particular creature from another world beats you by trumping your technology. You know, this sequence is actually packed with a lot of cool ideas. I like the idea that, you know, I, you know, going back to the first movie, Dutch is able to defeat the Predator by becoming less technological. You know, uh, the Predator has higher, higher level, you know, becomes invisible by using uh, a high technology device, whereas Dutch becomes invisible by uh, by covering himself in mud, uh, it's the idea that you know we're we're gonna defeat the predator at his own game by becoming invisible ourselves. And in this case, uh, the characters try to use you know uh, 1997 level technology. They try to beat it at its own game, but in a technological realm, and thereby they lose. You know they they would have done better with mud than with uh, a toy because you know the, their their gadgets aren't going to be up to the same level as the Predator's gadgets. Well, it seems like a terrible line of dialogue and everything, too, when UC says one thing we're sure of is that he can only see in infrared, uh, which is, A, you're after him for his alien technology. How do you know that he can only see in infrared? And B, then you have Harrigan say something, and he has to explain to the audience your body heat. Like, uh Yes. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Uh, they they have to explain the audience what infrared means. But it's also, um, I think there's a few things about this movie that aren't all the way thought out. That's no, for sure. No, but no. they did think through how to do a shot by shot remake of the scene in Aliens. Oh, yeah. uh, and Garber becomes Gorman, and he's goggling at the screens with his headset on, frozen and at a loss for words. And Danny has to take over. Get them out! They're walking into a trap. Yep. And he grabs the headset to talk to the team himself. And then at the end of that, we have this very awkward close-up where Danny Glover's grabbing Adam Baldwin and he goes, fuck yourself! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, I, I, throughout this entire sequence, it's like they took the pages from uh, the Aliens screenplay and just did uh, find and replace... <laughs> Yes. Yes. So Danny gears up like Ripley going after Newt and he's going to go in there himself and the sprinklers come on. And this is kind of where it gets sort of cool again. We know that Gary Busey's character is fucked. Uh, Garber's like, they're gone. They're all dead. And the last man standing is, is Harrigan uh, and maybe Gary Busey because Danny distracts the predator to save him. And it looks like maybe Gary Busey gets killed anyway. It's kind of chaotic, and Danny's blazing away at the Predator, and he, it's, he's damaging it. And he's put on a bulletproof vest, so he can actually absorb one of those blasts from the shoulder cannon. And we get kind of an acid-for-blood type deal, uh, like Hicks and Aliens, where he has to pull off the, the melting, the sizzling bulletproof vest, the armored vest. And he keeps shooting the thing, and that day glow blood is flying everywhere. And we get some cinematic shit with like the sprinklers going and the sides of beef and the you know fluttering shit in the air. It's all very uh, cinematic. It's derivative as all fuck, but it's still kind of cool. 
Yeah, another thing they steal is the idea that the Predator is down for the count and bleeding like Jason uh, or Michael Myers or whoever, and we think, is he dead? Is he dead? But no, he's not. But the hero holding a shotgun still uses the old horror movie cliche, and instead of continuing to shoot him or bash him in the head or anything, he instead wants to see what's under the mask. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somehow he he knows how to take off its helmet, and he decides that's what he should do now is remove the helmet. And he's not pleased by the Predator's ugly mug either. And he, he gets the opportunity to basically quote uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's line in the first movie by saying, you are one ugly mother. And that's what the audience says. Ha ha, I remember that. Uh, what's funny is the Predator uh, wakes up and finishes his line for him. Yeah. Motherfucker. Yeah, I guess the Predator saw the original movie too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It smashes his gun, it jumps up, game on, yep, it's fine, it shakes it all off, just like Jason would. He just and lost some hit points, that's all. Yeah, yeah, we he lost some hit points. We get to see its face, apparently this version of the Predator has more teeth or something, I don't know, I didn't really notice any uh, differences between this one and the creature in the first film. And then Gary Busey pops back up, guess who's back, he says, and he's spraying liquid nitrogen and he's like... Get out of here, Harrigan. I want to save your ass. This is between me and him. Yeah. Oh, boy. And then the Predator gets out its laser frisbee, which is awesome. It's this yeah. new weapon. It's kind of like the glaive and crawl, and it just cuts through everything, including Gary Busey. That's a really out. cool shot when he yeah. cuts through the, the size of beef until it gets to him, and he's off screen. But we, we can tell from the trajectory that cuts his head off, and then we see his body flop down like that. That's a cool fucking shot, man. Absolutely. Um, I mentioned that we were doing this to Amy Sorley, um, Predator superfan, and she mentioned that that image as being like the only thing she likes about this movie, pretty much. The Razor Frisbee is the perfect example of a thing that I thought was fucking awesome when I was 12. Precisely, precisely. It is is very cool. So somehow, uh, we're going to skip ahead a little, they end up on the roof of a building, and Danny Glover, I think he has access to one of Predator's weapons, but instead of using that, he just sort of tackles the Predator off the roof in this sort of suicidal move, but there's a ledge, and fortunately he kind of lands on it, and Predator's hanging off the ledge by Danny Glover's arm. There's and, some really dumb staging in, oh God. in, in, the, in, in this particular sequence, because Danny Glover, he runs up a ladder, right? He gets to the roof. And then he makes his way across the roof. So the ladder access hatch is behind him, but he, he's kind of creeping across the roof as if he expects the predator to be in front of him. Yeah. And that and that's when he gets startled by the birds. And he goes, birds. Right. Damn birds. <laughs> and right. then he, he tussles with the predator. One of the other kind of cool things that's established is apparently uh, Earth's atmosphere isn't native to the predators you know because he he kind of uses a thing off of his mask kind of take huffs off of it like like an oxygen thing like he doesn't immediately start strangling like he's a fish out of water but he yeah you know due to our atmosphere he has to kind of huff off of his own like kinda internal atmosphere and which is kind of a cool idea but then what happens is like he strikes a pose on the ledge of the building just so he could take a huff right there giving Danny Glover the perfect opportunity to tackle him off the roof. Uh, and it's dumb. 
And we get another classic exchange of dialogue where Danny's like, okay, pussy face, it's your move. Yeah. And Predator goes, shit happens. Yeah, yeah. This is the movie trying to do the Shane Black broad humor thing, but without the snap of Black's wit. Exactly. You know, so, so it comes out to be like 13-year-old locker room talk. Very little wit to be had. It activates its nuke, and he cuts off its arm with the laser frisbee, because um, now he's basically got the laser frisbee. He uses its own technology against it. Yeah. The Predator lands in this apartment. Uh, this is one of the things that I, re- I remember most vividly from watching this in the theater, and I'm not sure why, but the fact that the Predator ends up in this old couple's apartment really kind of made an impression on me, and I liked it as a kid. We see, as uh, Vic mentioned earlier, the Predator's first aid kit because he's got its, you know, his arm is severed. He busts out this sort of Bunsen burner type thing. And the technology here, the design is very well thought out and elaborate. He pours some shit on it, creates a flame. He's got to cauterize the wound, all that good stuff. There are two dumb things about this sequence. The first one is he activates his nuke on his arm and Danny Glover stops it by cutting off his arm. That makes no sense. If I'm holding a grenade and I pull the pin on the grenade... And if you cut off the arm that's holding the grenade, now the grenade is inert. Especially if the idea is that it's a self-destruct sequence, why would you design it to shut off if the Predator's arm gets severed? And the second is when he goes into the bathroom, he punches out a wall and gets a handful of tile, of plaster, and he mixes that with this alien goop that's going to cauterize his wound. And visually it's cool, but it's also telling us that his alien first aid goop doesn't work. Unless he happens to be in a scenario in which he can also get a handful of plaster to go along with it. It's a recreation of the beat from the first movie when we see him do essentially the same thing with the wound that he has. Exactly. But this time, because it's the sequel, he he has that great, like, alien roar in the first one. Well, here he has the great alien roar, and then he cauterizes another wound. And he has another great alien roar, (laughs) he cauterizes another wound. It's like, let's do the same thing, but just times three. But it'll be funny... Because there's a little old woman outside with a broom. Herb, wake up! There's somebody yeah. in the bathroom! Herb. Herb. Yeah. Similarly, it's funny, but it's so broad and, and, and almost kind of childish. She's got a broom. I, yeah, I, she's I, watching I, Jeopardy on TV. See, that's the difference between Predator, the first two aliens. Like, Cameron does an excellent job of not only coming up with interesting sci-fi ideas, but then actually also thinking them all the way down the line. You know, that's why they feel smart and functional and real world, and you can really buy into them. Whereas this is like, it's it's very comic booky. It's very one layer. It's like, you know, he activates a thing and Dangler cuts off his arm and stops. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, like Cameron would actually sit there and go, wait a minute. Okay, huh? It's slapdash. It's one of those things that, you know, just... Usually when you knock a sequel, it's the idea that it's a rush job and, you know, they don't necessarily take much time, you know, with conceptual design or screenwriting or all these little niceties. Uh, Whereas, you know, like with the first Alien, you know, it just comes to mind that all those guys had come up with all this awesome shit for a version of Dune that never got made. And, you know, they're some of the most brilliant minds in their industry and, in you know, with their specific skill sets that all work together to create this indelible vision of the future. Well, obviously Predator 2, you know, like this was just product being churned out by the studio machine so i mean on the one hand that makes it like uh, 
you know, that's why it's so bad and why we're, we're slamming it. But at the same time, you have to kind of understand, well, I mean, that's just sometimes that's the business of movie making. And we can't, you know, it doesn't make these people uh, idiots. It's just like, you know, th- this was a... This was exactly what sequels often became back then, and, and even yeah. today. <laughs> Let's get to the end where Danny falls into the Predator ship, basically this absurd sort of string of falls into things. And inside the ship, I wanted to mention that I thought that it reminded me like a poor man's version of H.R. Giger, where the design of the ship, it's this half-assed, painted-on, graffiti-looking set design version of like a, an alien ship in the alien films. It's also where we yeah. see the alien skull on the trophy wall. It's very conspicuous and a dragon head. Creatively and commercially, there's a ton of resonance to be had from the simple prop of the alien skull on the wall. Cause that, you know, every creative mind who looked at that was like, Oh fuck. That's what? Oh my God. What? It's a forerunner, and you could say that, well, you know, it's an antecedent of things like the Marvel Universe and where you have all of these characters in each other's films, and it becomes this larger narrative tapestry. But you could also look back to, like, the Universal Monsters. So all of them were appearing in each other's films and things like that eventually. Like, the idea of versus, Godzilla versus Mothra, all of that. Like, there's nothing that original about that idea. It just hadn't happened in 20 or 30 years. It hadn't happened in a contemporary filmmaking scenario yet. As, you know, risible as this film is in some ways, at the same time, this alien skull, it was a pebble that dropped into a lake and the ripples were huge. Uh, I agree with that. And well said. So um, now it's time for our hero to dispatch the villain, and this is one of the lamest things in the movie, I think. Just, like, the way that you stage a win in a fight sequence, like, how does one character get the better of another? Uh, Back then, like, the bar was very, very low for this type of thing. I remember thinking that a lot as a kid, and this is one of the weaker ones uh, I've seen in a while. Danny Glover just kind of has the laser frisbee in his hand, I think. And he uses the oldest trick in the book where he looks sort of weak and maybe he's close to, you know, you could knock him out in in sort of a boxing parlance. And the predator gets close and then he just suddenly stabs it in the gut. Like, oh, I was was playing possum. And then he says, that's right, asshole. Shit happened. He's got to follow a dumb win with a dumb line. More predators then show up and they come out of cloaking. Different looks as individuals, which is cool. I like seeing the different masks, and, you know, they're all pretty much the same, but there's there's some details to appreciate there. And they take the body of the dead predator. It's adios. Uh, on the way out, though, they throw him this 1715 flintlock as a sign of respect. And, by the way, who puts a year on their gun? But uh, Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 you're going to justify that? <laughs> I... I could think of a way to justify it if it was, like, for instance, a gift to uh, an officer, perhaps. Well, it did uh, have a name on it as well. So exactly. Maybe, maybe. That, that was my thought. That it, it was primarily intended to be a decorative gift for an officer. But I did laugh when he looks down at the thing and, you know, it, it, as per this movie, he looks down at the thing and it says 1715 and he goes, 1715. <laughs> yeah. Some of us in the audience may not be able to read. In case some of the audience members are not able to identify numbers. Yeah. But like the alien skull on the wall, the appearance of more predators is fantastic. I love that sequence. I even remember when I was in the theater watching it for the first time, 
it really felt like, you know, he's completely beaten down. He's got two hit points left. He's bloody. He's, he's, he's been through the ringer. And suddenly, like, all these other predators show up. And it's like, oh, shit. He is the kind of guy who goes, who's next? Again, as per this movie, here's where it's cool on the surface but dumb just underneath. Because right before he goes, who's next? He drops the laser thing. <laughs> I have two quick thoughts about this. The first is that this whole scene hints to me at what would have been a much more interesting movie or at least less of a rehash of the first one which is, if you're going to copy aliens, copy aliens. Don't have one predator. Have a whole hunting party of predators. But you could have explored the dynamics between the different predators and, and you know, up the ante in terms of the antagonist more besides just getting a new technology. I feel like there's a much cooler movie to be made about a band of five predators who showed up to collect a bunch of trophies and probably get drunk. But it does bespeak the idea that the predators go around and cruise and, like, mm-hmm. one guy goes out and hunts, and the rest of them, I guess, watch. Here's my other thought about it, though. Not only do they watch, they apparently watch while cloaked inside their own ship, because I understand why they're cloaked <laughs> initially and they come out, but then when they turn around to leave, they all turn their cloaking back on and, like, disappear. Yeah. Do they just walk around the ship invisible? Are they playing pranks on each other? I don't understand. <laughs> oh, my God, there there are so many brilliant possibilities and everything that you just said there, Vic. I mean, b- b- both for comedy and for a much better sci-fi action horror film. <laughs> if the idea is that their MO is that, like, a dozen predators go out in a crew and, like, one guy goes out into the quote-unquote jungle and hunts and the rest of them kind of watch from afar and judge his, uh, his technique, his danger, this is how they prove themselves to each other. But were there 12 other predators on the ship in the first movie is the question. And if so, was that predator willing to blow up his 12 friends just because Dutch got the best of them? It might be a rite of passage. Like, we're only seeing the youngest predators. Right. Like, these are sort of the junior predators, and this is kind of how, in sort of a Native American way, you know, you have to establish that you're a man is by uh, completing one of these hunting missions. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's a chief amongst this group of predators, and he gives Danny Glover uh, one of his hunting trophies as a sign of respect, which is a really cool fucking beat, man. Yeah, it makes sense that you would, like, as a sign of respect, bestow a gift upon even an adversary who has accomplished something meaningful within that sort of fraternity of the warrior uh, that, you know, like there's sort of an honor among these guys of this class. It's kind of almost like a samurai thing yeah. in some ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's buried within this. I mean, you certainly could see some really cool movies could have come out of this. And we often sort of mention graphic novels and novelizations and all the other things out there. There is a novelization of this, uh, of Predator 2, don't know how good it is. And obviously there have been comics and everything. So maybe they've developed some of these things better elsewhere. So to wrap up the movie, I'm a little hurt that you didn't read the novelization before this. (laughs) Why did you write a little more of you? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, uh, that's on my to-do list uh, for sure. Um, We got to reprise the first movies leap to safety as something booms behind the protagonist. A um, lot of direct repetition visually as the ship leaves and there's some fire. 
and Danny Glover has to leap out of the way, and he's buried in white soot and coughing. You know, the, the, the guy is definitely, he's gone the complete distance. He's gone through something. One of the memories that I carry from having seen this in the theater for the first time was it really felt like he pulled a win. Yeah, it's kind of like Evil Dead in that, like, this guy has survived this grueling odyssey of horror. Yes. You know, you know it's been an ordeal for him. Helicopter lands, Adam Baldwin gets out to hassle him, but they don't really fight. And as you mentioned before, you know, there's no real purpose to this at all. Other than for the parting shot from Harrigan to set up the next film, don't worry, asshole, you'll get another chance. Yeah. But Fox lost their shirt with this movie, so he didn't. Not for quite a while. <laughs> I guess that's it, guys. Any uh, parting shots from you? I'd like to see a sequel with Adam Baldwin coming back, getting his getting his shot finally. <laughs> Maybe that was the idea for Predator 3. <laughs> Literally, he gets another chance. <laughs> <laughs> to wrap up, uh, it's generally a dumb movie. It's very distinctly a weaker sequel, but it is it does have a lot of cool ideas. Yeah, it is a franchise killer though. It's it's no mis, you know, it's no surprise that this would be the end of the road for quite some time for the franchise. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time.